in religious discussions, very often we hear people, you know, maybe you refer to a text and you're trying to prove a point doctrinally and they say, well, but I feel... In other words, they're supplanting their emotion for the truth of the Scripture. Uh, or someone says, I wouldn't trade the feeling that I have in my heart for a whole stack of Bibles. All emphasis on emotion rather than on subjective truth. Uh, I mean, rather than objective truth. Today we want to talk about emotions. We want to talk about emotions in religion but we don't want to talk about our emotions. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes about the emotions of God. Have you ever considered the fact that God has certain emotions? And if we want to understand more about God, it would be very appropriate for us to understand how he feels about things. And so for a few minutes in our study this morning, what we want to do is talk about the emotions of God. Before we get to that, I would just stop here briefly to add words of welcome to those that Matt already expressed. We're glad for everybody who's here today. Uh, it is a very cold Sunday morning in Middle Tennessee. Uh, I told someone earlier, this, this Christmas in Middle Tennessee is more like Christmas in Wisconsin than it is Christmas in Tennessee. Yesterday, some of us were talking about a year ago, we were sitting on the front porch in our shirt sleeves when we all got together for a Christmas observance at home. Uh, and so this year is quite different. But we appreciate you for braving the elements and coming out this morning, making it a priority uh, on this very busy holiday time of year uh, to be here, to gather together to worship. We appreciate you very much for that, and we are encouraged by it. We've got a, a lot of visitors today, and we're so glad you came our way, and we want you to come again every time you have a chance to be here. What about the emotions of God? You know, we talk about how people feel, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emphasis in, in folks' minds about how I feel, uh, what my emotions are. I tell you, we really ought to be more concerned about the emotions of God. The Scriptures tell us several things about God's emotions. For, for a starter, and a very important starter, the Scripture tells us that God loves one of the principal emotions of God is love. I think if you went out on the streets of Columbia, Tennessee today and took a poll, uh, I think this would probably be the top thing that people would mention. They'd mention that God has love. And they'd be absolutely right about that. Um, and we wouldn't want anything that we say today to diminish from the fact that a principal emotion of God is love, love for mankind. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it simply says, God is love. You want to know what God is? God is love. God is the perfect definition of love. And so we must absolutely agree with the popular opinion that God is a God of love. The fact of the matter is that God has shown that love for us in so many different ways, remarkable ways, if you will. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Everything we have, everything that we are, is a gift from God. Sometimes when the men lead us in prayer in our public assemblies, they'll, they'll enumerate some of the things that God gives us. And, and it's not uncommon for them to even say, Thank you for the air we breathe. Well, that's true, right? That is absolutely right. Uh, everything is from God. Uh, we are 
a blessed people. In our Bible class this morning, we were talking about the fact that uh, of all people in all the history of humanity, we are among the most materially blessed people that have ever existed. And we need to be grateful for that. And all of that is a, is a manifestation of God's love. God loves us. He blesses us in abundant ways, uh, physical ways. But even more so, God blesses us spiritually. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is really hard to comprehend, I think, in our minds, that God could love us so much that he would send his only begotten son to serve as a sacrifice for our sins. I, whenever we read this verse, I think we have to emphasize this part of the verse. While we were yet sinners, God loved us not because we were so wonderful and lovable. I mean, we were so special. We were so great. Obviously, God would send his son just because we deserved it. We were so wonderful in his estimation. That's not true, is it? That's not true. God loved us when we were unlovable, when we were poor, wretched, miserable sinners. God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, to make an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us even when we were not lovable. And that's really amazing. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 9, it says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loveth them that follow after righteousness. Uh, notice, he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. And that's where we want to be. God loves those who are trying to do his will. Uh, and that's really important to, to, for us to grasp. You know, talk about the emotions of God. You've got to list his love as a primary emotion of God. But there's something else in that verse that I want to point out to you. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And that's going to segue to our next point. Uh, it, it, it introduces another aspect about the emotions of God. So certainly God loves, but the scriptures tell us that God can be angry as well. Another emotion of God is that he can be angry. So here, there's this very powerful man. And you understand that you don't want to make him mad or angry. He may be just a hulking mountain of a man who could crush you with one blow, maybe physically strong. You don't want to make him mad. He'll punch you out. Or maybe he's not necessarily physically strong, but he is a very He's in a position of great power. He can cause you all kind of grief and, and all sorts of trouble because he is, he's a man who possesses lots of clout, political clout. He has a lot of power. So either way, whether a man's physically strong or he has this sort of power to influence your life, a powerful man, you don't want to, you don't want to get on his bad side, right? And you don't want to be very careful not to make him angry. Well, if that's true of a man... Certainly, we ought to realize that that sort of thinking ought to pertain to God. It, uh, it would be uh, the most scary proposition to make God angry. And the scripture says that God can get angry. In Psalm 7, verse 11, God judges the righteous. God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry with the wicked. God has the emotion of anger. Why does God get angry with the wicked? Is it because God is mean and he's spiteful 
And if you dare to do something he doesn't want you to do, he's, he's just mad because you have, you have insulted him. Somehow you have caused some kind of a, a shame upon him and he's mad because he feels personally hurt in the matter and that you've done him wrong. That's actually not it. The reason why God is angry with the wicked every day is because of the first point we were making. The first point is He loves us. And the reason He gets angry when we don't do His will is not because we've uh, uh, some, somehow shorted Him of the glory He deserves. He's, he's angry about it because He knows it's not in our best interest. He, he wants what's best for us. He knows that wickedness is hurtful to us and He's angry when wickedness gets a hold of us. Look in Nahum. Chapter 1, beginning verse 2. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Notice this last expression. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He's slow. He's slow to anger, but if you're guilty and you don't do anything about that, then you can expect that God will address that. God gets angry with the wicked. In Proverbs chapter 6, in the text that Stephen read for us a few minutes ago, it talks about six things that the Lord hates. You've got to draw attention to that, right? And it goes on to enumerate six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Well, there's seven things that are an abomination to God. He hates these things. Well, that being the case, then it would seem logical, wouldn't it, that we would avoid doing those kind of things. We would avoid doing anything that God hates or is angry about. That just makes sense when you stop to think about it. So, it's kind of interesting, but I actually believe these two things are connected. God loves us, and He gets angry when we don't do the things that He knows are in our best interests. God loves, God can be angry. The Scriptures tell us, though, that God is sometimes hurt and disappointed. I think all of us have a, a desire to please the people that mean the most to us. And we never want to be a disappointment to the people that we really care about. Um, I, I hope our young people would feel that way toward their parents. You wouldn't want to do anything to disappoint or hurt your parents. I think those of us who are parents and grandparents ought to have that same feeling toward our children. I wouldn't want to do anything that would disappoint my children or my grandchildren. Because we want, we want to please the people that mean the most to us. I think we should feel that way toward our brethren. I wouldn't want to do anything that would discourage or disappoint my brethren. Well, God can be hurt and disappointed. What about God? We should not want to hurt or disappoint Him by doing wrong. This was the case with Israel of old. You know, there's a lot of parallels between physical Israel in the Old Testament times and us as the people of God today. But notice in Isaiah chapter 65, the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, I, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. 
I have spread out my hands all the day into a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Notice he's talking about Israel and he says, I have spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. This is obviously a hurtful thing to God. We know the history of Israel and we know that how God had blessed Israel over and over again and again and yet they kept turning away from him. He kept holding out his hand. He kept desiring for them to come back and do the right sort of thing and they weren't. And God was discouraged, disappointed, and hurt by the fact that his people that should have been called by his name were not responding in the way that they should. What he longed for but didn't get is expressed here in Psalm 81, verse 13. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. That's what he really wanted. And he was discouraged and hurt that they would not do that. Again, not because uh, he, he felt shorted in some way, but because he knew that this was destructive to them. He wanted what was best for them, and they weren't doing what he wanted them to do. It was a discouragement to God. Jesus expressed the same sort of feeling in Matthew 23 when he spoke about the Jews in Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus there expressing strong emotions, wouldn't you agree? These are the emotions of Jesus. He wanted the people to do right, and they would not. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21 about the disappointment of a father concerning a son who wouldn't do the right thing. In in Matthew 21, beginning verse 28, what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of the Father? The people said to him, the first. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say to you, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus was saying to the religious elites uh, of his day that they were like that second son who claimed that they would be obedient and were not. Uh, and, And, of course, the discouragement or disappointment of a father, of a son who says he's going to do something and who will not All of that, I think, points to this emphasis that it's possible to hurt and discourage God, uh, to disappoint Him because we're not living the way that we should. I don't want to disappoint the people that mean the most to me. And God should mean the most of all to me. And that being the case, I should not want to hurt or disappoint Him. We wouldn't want to leave the impression by anything that we've said that God is mean or unreasonably overbearing because that's not true god is a god of compassion and i think if we're talking about the emotions of god you've got to you certainly got to add in the his compassionate nature toward us look in psalm 103 beginning verse 8 god is merciful and gracious slow to anger and plenteous in mercy he hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. 
That's a comforting passage when you stop to think about it. Especially this idea. He had not dealt with us after our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. You know, you know what we deserve, right? Uh, we, we all deserve to be cast just ultimately into the fires of hell, there to be tortured for eternity because of who we are and what we've done. But God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. That's a great thing. That's a really great thing when you think about that as an, an emotional aspect of God. God pities us. He knows us. He knows that we are but frail dust. That's really important. That's a comfort to know that God is a God of compassion. I think in Isaiah chapter 49, beginning verse 15, we see a really perfect picture of God's compassion toward us. Proverbs 49, beginning 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Isn't that amazing? How likely would it be for a woman to forget her nursing child or fail to have compassion on on her son? Not likely, but... Isaiah is saying it's more, li- it's more likely that that would happen than that God would forget his people. And th- th- this expression, inscribed on the palms of his hands, that's really something in it. When you think about God cares for us at that level. A verse that we point out, point out fairly frequently is Hebrews 4, verse 15. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are Yet without sins. How can God and Christ, how can, the, how can deity be so compassionate on us? Well, Hebrews 4.15 says it's because Jesus knows by personal experience what it's like to be in these frail human bodies and face the temptations that we face. God is a compassionate God. And we should certainly be grateful for that. Finally, Let me suggest to you that God rejoices when we do well. We talked a little bit ago about how we don't want to be a disappointment to the people that mean the most to us. We want to please the people that we care about, whose opinions we cherish. And and how often have you heard a parent or a grandparent uh, sort, sort of bragging on their offspring, you know. So here's, here's a grandparent, and, and he's telling about the significant accomplishments of his grandchildren. And he's very happy about that, and he's pleased about that. He's happy that his grandchildren are doing well. Well, that's, that's reasonable. I think that's logical. We're glad when, the, when people do well, and God is happy when we do well. Real quickly, I want to refer you to three parables Jesus told in one chapter, Luke chapter 15. And all of these, I think, go to the idea that God is compassionate, He cares for us, and He rejoices when we do well. starts out in Luke 15 at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? I say to you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. So the point of the point of the one lost sheep out of the out of the hundred, when the one lost sheep is found, rejoicing in heaven, joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. When that one sinner does well, it brings joy. 
in heaven. As that text goes on, verse 8, Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And so when you do well, what, what reaction does that provoke in God and the heavenly host for that matter? What reaction does it provoke when you do well? Joy and rejoicing. And then, of course, the, the very well-known story of the prodigal son that concludes that chapter in chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. He said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. And you know, you know how that story goes on. And the prodigal son wasted all his substance on riotous living, the text said. He had fallen to the depths of, de- depths of despair. Uh, he was feeding a herd of swine and wishing that he could eat the food that he was assigned to feed to them. He was just, as Jesus paints that word picture, he paints it just as graphically as possibly could. This guy was as low as you could get. And he came to himself and he decided that he would return home. But notice what happened when he returned home. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had, there it is, had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. We've often pointed out that the prodigal son is representative of us and the father's representative of God. And in that parable, you would think, so the father sees sees the prodigal son coming some way off. And he said, well, there's that rascally son of mine. And he's 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 no good and he's he's wicked and immoral and I'm not going to ha- I don't care for him and he's dead to me I'm not going to I don't I don't want anything to do with that kid That's not the way the father reacted the father reacted with compassion when his son repented and returned and that's the kind of compassion that God has for us and he is and the kind of rejoicing that is typical when we do well Well there's at least five things that we could point out about the emotions of God. And I think it's possible that we could expand that list some, but all of these are important. God is a God of love, but He can be angry. He can be hurt and disappointed when we fail. But He has compassion and He rejoices when we do well. All those things, I think, are really important for us to know about God and to know about the emotions of God. In our day and time, most people act upon how they feel especially when it comes to their religious service. They're worried about their feelings. How do I feel about this? Actually, what matters is how does God feel about us? How does God feel about our lives and what we're doing? We, want to, we ought to seek to please God. God is a God of emotions. How does he feel about you this morning? I think that's a worthy question to ask, and each one of us should do some soul-searching to make sure that our lives are right with God. What's your situation today? Have you become a Christian by obeying that simple gospel plan of salvation so easily expressed by just five points? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. Have you done that? If not, we would encourage you to make that decision without delay. Uh, it's the most important decision of life. If you're not a Christian, we, we would urge you to make that choice. If you need more study, we'd be glad to sit down and study with you so you can make an informed decision, very important. You let us know how we can help you in, in this most important matter. Are you a Christian already? 
But maybe you've slipped back and not been following God faithfully as you promised you would when you became a Christian. Know that if that's the case, God can be angry. He's certainly disappointed because you're not following a, a, a kind of lifestyle that's helpful to you. And if you're in that kind of situation, we would urge you to come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you this morning. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.